Turn your windshield time into learning time. When you're not listening to the Scaling Up H2O podcast, listen to the next book that is going to unlock something so you can do better in your day-to-day by signing up for Audible. Go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash Audible to get a free book and a free month and learn why it's one of my favorite tools. Welcome to Scaling Up, the podcast where we scale up on knowledge so we don't scale up our systems. I'm Trace Blackmore, the host of Scaling Up H2O. And folks, what a great industrial water week last week. Oh my gosh, that was number four that we have celebrated together. They get better each and every year. More and more people celebrate each and every year, and we include each other more and more each and every year in that celebration. I cannot wait for next year to celebrate Industrial Water Week. And of course, Industrial Water Week is always the first full week in October, and next year we're going to be celebrating Industrial Water Week starting on October 3rd. So. Now that Industrial Water Week is over, you can go and get all of your Industrial Water Week party supplies. They're all on clearance. All the stores are trying to get rid of them. So now's the time to stock up on that stuff. I know we haven't really reached that in Industrial Water Week celebration, but I'm sure that's to come. And I want to thank so many people out there that shared how they celebrated by hashtagging IWW21 and scaling up H2O. I saw boilers, I saw softeners, I saw cooling towers. I saw people that made the water cake from last year, and I even saw somebody that dressed up as Detective H2O. I love it. Thank you so much for everybody that did that. If you haven't checked out all those great pictures, go ahead and check out those hashtags. You are going to want to participate next year if you have not. And speaking of Detective H2O, James McDonald, great job on putting all those together. Of course, I replayed the ones that we played the previous year. James, we know that takes a lot of work, but we so badly need more detective and doctor H2O in our lives. So James, reach out to me. Let me know how I can help. And uh, I think the world really wants Trace to be one of your voices. So if there's any way I can help with that, please let me know. We are all wanting the next rendition of those. Back in episode 204, I spoke about being profitable. And I know when I mentioned that on episode 204, many people thought that they knew everything they needed to know about being profitable. Well, what I did there is I made a hamburger and I broke down how we actually get paid if we were to open up our own hamburger store. And through that analogy, So many people have contacted me and said that that really helped them understand profitability. 
It really helped them understand what they were doing on a day-to-day basis, also how they were pricing things, and what questions to ask so they could do both of those things better. The more information we have, the better decisions that we can make. And I want to thank everybody that whenever you listen to an episode and you come back to the show with feedback. I love that. That helps me. Thank you for all the people that did that. So what I got out of all of your feedback is when we think we know something, do we really know it well enough? Or do we only know it one way and there's multiple ways to know that topic? So the point I think I'm trying to make is if you want to see how well you know a topic, try to explain that to somebody that has absolutely no context about that topic. I know many of us get frustrated when we talk to non-water treaters about things that are going on in our lives. Well, with profitability, when you're talking with somebody, how well are you able to explain that if they're not in business? Einstein said, if you can't explain it to a six-year-old, you don't understand it yourself. And there's so much wisdom in that statement. So I challenge myself with that quote all the time. I challenge you to do the same thing, to see how well you know something by how well you can explain it. And folks, when you know something, I urge you to share that knowledge with somebody else because that's how we all get better. Because I received so many comments about episode 204, I thought it would be a great idea to bring someone in today to expand that topic. Now, he's not in the water treatment industry, but there's so many similarities among all businesses. I know you're definitely going to learn something from today's interview. My lab partner today is Russ Stevens, co-founder of the Association of Professional Builders. Russ, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for inviting me. I'm excited to be here. And I can tell right off the bat, just from listening to you, you are not from Atlanta, are you? No, not quite. Uh, Originally from England and uh, moved to Australia in 2006 uh, with my family and uh, been here ever since. I appreciate you making the trip virtually all the way over here to Atlanta, Georgia, where I'm recording from. Uh, I'm really excited about today's show. We're going to talk about a subject that I recently spoke on, episode 204, and I think people are scared to ask the questions that they really need to know to understand their business, to understand their sales, and really how what they do on a day-to-day impacts the bottom line. So I'm hoping that our conversation today will allow people to understand things like margin a little bit better, uh, markup a little bit better, all the things that allow a business to stay in business so they can make better decisions. Absolutely. I'm so excited. Uh, I love talking about this stuff and really looking forward to, to getting into this with you, Trace. Well, before we get started, do you mind telling the Scaling Up Nation a bit about yourself? Certainly. I uh, started out in business at 
19 years old. That was back in the early 80s, a long time now. And uh, I started a, a distribution company. So I, I literally started selling from the back of the van, driving around uh, South London, selling to discount stores from the back of the van. And over the next um, 25, 30 years, I, I grew that business um, to the point it employed 50 people and was turning over $35 million uh, in revenue a year. And really, the whole goal of building a business was so that we could put ourselves in a financial position to emigrate to Australia. It was always uh, a goal of ours. And in 2006, we realized that goal. We, we sold our company and emigrated to Australia. And then it was a case of, well, what do we do now? We had to start again because uh, Australia wouldn't allow us to become uh, investor residents. They they wanted us to start a company and employ Australians and contribute to the economy. So we had to do something else. So we started dabbling in the construction industry because that looked like a good growth industry compared to what I'd been in previously, which was the discount retail industry, which was independently was in decline <laughs> the whole time. And uh Ended up doing a few different things in construction, but um, around about 2010, I came across an American company that had developed some very advanced project management software that um, connected the consumer to the to the building company, and uh, it was revolutionary. So we introduced that to the construction industry in Australia and New Zealand and the UK, and um, yeah, we signed up over a thousand building companies to uh, to that software in the in the next few years, and it was during that process I realised, talking to builders, that the big gap was lead generation. They really didn't have any idea how to generate leads, and as a consequence of that, we started a, a marketing agency for builders around about 2011. That grew, and uh, as a consequence of that, we uh, we could we found that we could generate a lot of leads for builders, good quality leads. But some of the guys were successful. Some of the guys still weren't being successful. They, you know, they were saying the leads were rubbish. And we realized the big difference was the guys that were struggling didn't have a sales process, which is why in 2014, we launched the Association of Professional Builders, you know, with a, a goal to improve in the construction industry for both builders and consumers. And I'm betting the water treatment industry is not unique to this, but there's always somebody that says they can do it cheaper. Does that happen in your industry too? <laughs> All the time, every every day of the week. Um, for people outside of the industry, and, and even a lot of people inside the industry, I guess, as well, uh, builders are very much uh, viewed as a commodity. And I think that's the one thing that really attracted me to this industry as well, because I didn't see building homes as a commodity at all. I saw it as a, a very unique um service really that uh, could not be treated as a commodity and um, and theoretically you couldn't lose a job on price because very rarely are two houses the same but certainly the perception is is very very different and the, the worst thing at all is the the builders buy into this and think of themselves as commodities as well and end up competing on price so what is the mindset change that you have to have that it's not about price, it's about the product that I'm putting out and it is perfectly okay for me to charge a premium for that product? 
Yeah, great, great question, Trace, because this this is where we start with our whole coaching process with builders because uh, it's no good just telling a company that you should be charging more and you should be earning more because uh, if it was that simple, you know, we'd all be doing it. We'd just be putting our prices up. But the first thing we have to do with a building company is change the owner's mindset. And the way we do that is by getting them to understand their financials because when they truly understand their financials, and not many owners of building companies do, because there's a few complexities in construction financials that not many people understand, even their own accountants. But once we explain those complexities and give them the tools to truly understand their financials, builders then realize just how little they're earning out of their companies and how little they're actually selling their time for. And when that happens, they get angry. They get really angry. And that triggers a mindset change because once they get angry, they then become determined and focused. And that is where we can then guide them on how to charge more money because they not only believe can do it, they know they have to change. And uh, that's that's probably the most powerful thing. So then we we take them through the steps, which obviously includes marketing as one of the um, the most important things. We always say to the companies we work with that margins are linked to marketing very important because it, it comes down to supply and demand in the end. The more demand you can create by keeping the supply the same, that enables you to increase your margins. But uh, yeah, before we can get there, we have to change the mindset. Just recently, I was telling the Scaling Up Nation about a book that my mastermind group just finished reading called Procrastinate on Purpose by Rory Vaden. And he really stresses what he calls MVOT, the money value of time. So if I do this thing, how much is this thing actually costing me? And can I hire someone else that can do it to allow me to do something of higher value? Is that what we're talking about? Oh, uh, yeah, you've um, you've really touched on something where, and I think this isn't just specific to builders. This this happens to us all, doesn't it, in business? No one's as good as us. No one, no one can do anything as good as we can do. And of course they can't. And no one works as hard and as long as we do in their own business. And this is why a lot of companies, and specifically building companies, they don't scale very well when they're below 10 million because the owner influence, the owner is doing that much work it won't scale on those margins because as you bring people in to do what you're doing, they're not going to work 80 hours a week. You know, you're going to have to pay them a, a decent wage and uh, and realize that uh, they're not going to work as hard and as fast and as long as you. And uh, understanding that is very important. And a good process for that is the, the stop doing list, you know, doing a time audit and understanding exactly what you're doing in the business and then start working on those low value tasks first, getting rid of them, using the DAD process, delete, automate, delegate. You know, a lot of stuff we do, we don't even really need to do. So we can delete it and uh, and then we can automate a lot of stuff, but we have to be careful. Yeah, just because we can doesn't mean we should. We can spend a lot of time automating stuff that is simply not viable, but then delegate, but sort the, you know, systemize, create the process and then delegate and then report on that. Already several times, you and I have both mentioned numbers, and I know there are people out there that are wondering, what are the core numbers that we need to be looking at to know that, one, we're selling something at the right price, we are actually making money on that. How does a salesperson truly know what profit is and how to sell those things? Yeah, it's the, the most important thing, isn't it? It's why we do what we do. There has to be a net profit 
left over at the end. And there's a there's a couple of big problems that I see, and uh, I see it a lot in our industry. I've seen it in other industries as well, and. A lot of business owners don't understand the difference between markup and margin, and that's really dangerous. It's dangerous when you're on big margins, and it's probably even more dangerous when you're on small margins because you could actually be losing money without realizing it, especially if you're not analyzing your financial reports uh, systematically on a monthly basis. So maybe if I just touch on that very quickly, markup is the amount you add to your cost of sales to get your selling price. And margin is that gross profit as a percentage of your revenue. And although they they might sound similar and they get the terms even get used interchangeably, which confuses people, but specifically builders who work on very low margins, you may have a a builder that believes he's working on a 20% margin. So when he sees uh, $200,000 come into his business, he believes he's made $40,000. But the truth is, He's adding a 20% markup, and that equates to a 16.6% margin. And the danger there is, unless he can read his accounts properly by making some um, unusual calculations in order to correct his accounts, then when that $200,000 comes into his business, instead of making $40,000 profit, he's only made $33,000. Now, that's $7,000 difference. You know, if you multiply that up on bigger and bigger numbers, The danger is because he doesn't understand his net profit, he then looks at his cash in the bank. And this is why when we analyze companies that have gone into liquidation, we see jet skis on the balance sheet and boats and brand new utes, pickup trucks, et cetera, because uh, they didn't understand that they weren't actually making money, but they understood they had cash in the bank and they, they thought they were doing well and they went and spent it. It's very, very dangerous. So first thing, they must understand the, uh, the difference between markup and margin in order to have a healthy margin. But in order to work backwards, I'd always start at the the net profit because the net will tell you really what you need to be adding to your cost of sales, uh, i.e. You know, your, your gross profit. And in order to get to a decent net, you know, we, we typically advise builders in our industry and all industries are different. So uh, I couldn't speak across uh, too many different industries here, but in terms of the construction industry, the accepted norm tends to be anything is good, really. <laughs> any, any net profit is good. But you know, builders like to, to clear between 2 and 3%. But at the APB, the Association of Professional Builders, we believe, and we've proved this as well, that uh, 10% plus is the minimum a building company should be working on. It's dangerous to work on anything less than a 10% net margin. And that's after owner's drawings as well, which I'll come back to on that. So once you understand your, your net margin, then you, the next thing to understand are the industry benchmarks for your particular industry. This can be uh, a bit easier in some industries than others, but in the construction industry, for instance, the industry benchmark for fixed expenses is 15%. So when a builder understands that his net needs to come in at 10% and his fixed expenses, including his own drawings, are 15%, then he understands that he's got to be adding a 25% gross margin. And that means he's got to be adding 33.3% markup in order to hit that 25%. Now, there's not many builders that come to us that uh, are on that are adding 33.3% markup to their jobs. And I, I'll be completely honest here. When, when the Association of Professional Builders started back in 2014, we had builders falling off their chair laughing <laughs> at events we did when we told them these uh, these benchmarks. But 
Having been coaching builders for the last seven years now, we now have the proof and we have builders that have taken their business from one or 2% up to 10% plus net. And in some cases have gone further uh, up to 15% net. So we we know this is very, very possible and achievable in our industry. And, and really, whatever industry you're in, then the net can always be improved. There's, there's no doubt about that. You just need to make some key changes. Everything you've said translates perfectly into the water treatment industry. So I think the translation is good, as well as what you mentioned, the tiny margins. And you mentioned that builders were doing things for 2 and 3%. How are they ever expected to provide that world-class service at such a tiny profit? That's the problem. They simply can't. And uh, in a lot of cases, that 2 and 3%, that ended up being their drawings because they didn't put their drawings into the fixed expenses, either because they forgot or because their accountant advised them not to and because he could make it more tax efficient. But the danger with that is you simply don't value your time enough. And it's very hard to to plan and grow a company when you've omitted one of the major expenses from your your budgeting. You've got to put that in because, again, that forms a big mindset change. But to answer your question, yes, it's not only very, very difficult, bordering on impossible to to scale a company on 2 or 3% margin, it's also extremely dangerous simply because of the reasons I mentioned earlier that companies below 10 million, especially in the construction industry, do not scale like a a normal business, like an e-commerce business, for instance. And what we find, we use a great example of builder A, builder B, where we actually show the timeline of a builder on low margins and a builder B that uses what we call the pricing for profit method, which um, prices jobs on a net profit rather than a gross profit. So the builder B, as they grow, we see builder A in between two and three years, he actually starts to lose money, whereas builder B gets more and more profitable and can put more money into his marketing and still be more profitable. And what we hear in our industry a lot, I don't know if you hear this, Trace, in, uh, in the water industry, but we hear a lot of builders that grew their company over a two to three year period. They then, um, they might go from five or six homes a year to 25, 30 homes a year. And we hear them saying things like, I just need a few more and then I'll be profitable. I just need a few more and then it's going to be okay. And then we might hear them say another year's time where they've dropped down. I'm earning more money now. I'm, I'm back doing five or six homes a year than when I was doing 25. And uh, they believe that scaling is not profitable, it's not worth it, but they simply didn't use the right metrics to scale their building company. What would you say the most important thing to look at to make sure you can scale your business properly is? There's a couple of things. There's uh, obviously net margin, as we've uh, we've mentioned, is incredibly important to monitor, but there's there's probably a good 10 to 12 key metrics in every business that have got to be monitored if you're going to scale it, because you've got to be looking at both your lead indicators and your lag indicators. Now, your lead indicators will cover things like your advertising spend, because then you'll be looking at how many marketing qualified leads you're generating. So not leads, but marketing qualified leads. So we need to know how much those marketing qualified leads are costing us. So we divide one by the other and we can measure our cost per marketing qualified lead and we can we can see our spend as well as a percentage of revenue. 
from the marketing qualified leads, the other lead indicators would be how many of those marketing qualified leads developed into opportunities, how many of those opportunities converted into sales. Now, the process for a building company is very long and they have a couple of stages in the sales process. I'm not sure how that relates to the water treatment industry, but they would have a concept design stage. They would then have a prelim stage and then the building contract. So we have to measure those as well. But once we get to the building contract, we sort of transition into the the lag indicators and that's where we look at our accounts. And this is where accountants become very good business. <laughs> well, I'm saying that sarcastically, but accountants like to give a lot of business advice, but they only focus on the lag indicators. So they're looking at history, which is very, very dangerous. But we do have to look at the lag indicators as well. We have to look at revenue. We have to look at gross margin. We have to look at our fixed expenses as a percentage of revenue. And of course, our net margin and of course, our cash. Yeah, very important to keep a very close eye on the cash as well. So for a builder, what should cash flow be? How much extra cash should they have in the the bank to pay their bills? Yeah, we're going to open up a can of worms here because um, <laughs> we, we have a, a very misunderstood calculation in the construction industry, and it's called work in progress. Now, when uh, work in progress is a, is a complex calculation which um, identifies the hidden liability in a building company because what builders tend to do is they front load their contracts to get positive cash flow. So they might get to stage one of a build, which is putting the slab down. And at that point, they might have claimed 20% from the, the client. And that's great, but they might have only um, paid out 7 or 8% to suppliers and subcontractors. And that's presuming all those invoices have come in for the slab stage as well. So at this point, their cash flow is heavily distorted. Not only their cash flow, but also their accounts as well, because they would have, uh, on a million dollar build, if you can imagine, where a builder might be working on a 20% margin, he's now claimed 200,000 in his revenue in his accounts, but his uh, his cost of sales might only be 70 or 80,000. So his gross profit is now showing 120,000 on the 200,000 revenue it's crazy. And the builder knows that isn't correct, but he doesn't know what's wrong or how to correct it. So he ignores it and looks at the cash and that's dangerous as well. So very, very important that uh, builders understand this calculation. We call it the work in progress accounting adjustment, because when we started asking builders, you know, do you calculate your work in progress? They'd all look at us and smile and say, yeah, I've got plenty of work in progress. What they were thinking of was workflow. So they're, they're thinking because they got plenty of jobs in the pipeline, they got lots of work in progress. So the whole thing got very, very confusing. So we, uh, we created a term to really um, make this clear. This is a, a calculation. We call it the work in progress accounting adjustment. Now, that calculates that hidden liability between the um, 70 or 80,000 that uh, may have been invoiced to a building company and the 160,000, which should be of, should have been invoiced in a perfect world if they were working on a 20% margin. So we calculate that as liability. That goes into the accounts, and that helps them understand it. The reason I've uh, explained all that is because when it comes to cash flow, the builders that don't do this, they spend the cash. So it becomes a little bit like a giant Ponzi scheme. And once, um, once the revenue stops growing, they don't have enough cash in the business to, to pay this hidden liability. So... To answer your question, how much cash flow they should have, that is the first requirement. They must have enough cash to, sh to cover this hidden liability, which in a building company that's turning over just uh, five or six million, 
that liability could be as high as $750,000. That's $750,000 that a building company needs to hold in cash reserve to cover a liability that's uh, not even appearing in their accounts. Uh, crazy, eh? Again, a lot of similarities between our two industries. Uh, you mentioned marketing a couple of times. Is there a magic number for what we should have in our budget based on our revenue that's going to marketing? Yes, as much as you can afford. <laughs> because if your marketing engine is, uh, is working and firing, then why wouldn't you spend all of your spare cash on generating even more leads? Because it's the best investment you can, you can make. I see way too many business owners, they create a profitable company and either because they thought it was a good idea or they're getting financial advice, they, they take 100, 200,000 out of their business at the end of the year and put it into the stock market and invest in someone else's company. Why not reinvest in your own company? You've got a proven model here. Go and buy more leads. That's all you're doing. You're buying more sales effectively. But you can only do that if you're watching your numbers and then you know that, okay, if I double my uh, advertising spend, I'm going to double my marketing qualified leads, my opportunities, my initial sales and my contracts and all those, um, you know, I can scale the company because I am paying myself a realistic wage and my company is working on strong enough margins that it will scale. You know, so once you've got all your, your KPIs in place, throw more money at your marketing, but obviously watch it because, um, you know, things do not scale linear. So the more money you throw at advertising, yeah, you will see a drop off in performance. But that's why we monitor our KPIs, you know, every day, every week, every month. Well, hopefully with all this advertising and monitoring, we are getting good new business and the owner can only do so much. So he's hiring people to help him price new jobs. How do we ensure that those people that are doing the contracts, that are speaking with the customers, have all the information that they need so they're pricing things properly? You've got to have very good SOPs in any business. So you can't leave pricing open to interpretation. A well-run company is a company that's the backbone is SOP, standard operating procedures that everyone is following. And the information has all got to be transparent. But as a business owner, you can't go around inspecting everything that everyone's doing and becoming a micromanager. And that's why you have to have exception reports, i.e., you're looking for the things that aren't going well. So you're looking for the gaps in the system. And, uh, and in your specific uh, example here, in terms of pricing, what we coach our builders to do is a post-project audit where they would bring the team in post-project. And that includes the estimator and the project manager, two key people here, because we want to understand what happened to this job in terms of both the timeline and the budget. And we'll, we'll look at, obviously, the overall budget, but we'll look at the budget in terms of cost centers, because that information, if we've got a cost center blowing out, that's got to be fed back. Communication is key here. That's got to be fed back to the estimator. Equally, if the timeline's blowing out, that's got to be fed back to the estimator as well, because they can make adjustments when they're pricing jobs. So uh, you've got to have these feedback loops in place all the way through the company. Well, Russ, let's stay on marketing a little bit longer. You've taken us through KPIs. We've got all of those working perfectly. Everything is, is running properly, and all we need is more business. What should we be focusing on? Well, in terms of uh, generating more business, 
we obviously we've got to ramp up our advertising but before we can ramp up our advertising our marketing machine has got to be in place what a lot of people don't understand is that the internet turned the entire sales process on its head about 12 13 years ago because 12 13 years ago if you wanted to to buy a new car for instance or an appliance you would go into the the car dealership or the or the shop and you'd speak to a salesperson and they would educate you they would drip feed you the information that enabled you to make your decision and they were in control they held the power and they enjoyed it but when the uh, the internet went mainstream the, the balance of power was just turned on its head. All of a sudden, consumers became empowered. They no longer needed the salesperson to, to feed them the information anymore. They did all their research online, and they went into the car dealership knowing a lot more about the vehicle they were intending to buy than the actual salesperson. And it's the same you know, for appliances as well. People walk into uh, an appliance retailer fully understanding um, a lot more about the different brands than, than ever before. Same when they go to build a house. Consumers are now more educated than at any point in history. And we have to understand that as business owners because um, we are dealing with a, a very different situation when they're coming to us. We can no longer drip feed the information to them. So the way we, we tackle this in our marketing is that we become the provider of information online. We have to be the company that is educating the consumer in the marketplace before they even approach us, Yeah, before we even have that first conversation. So that means we have to get very good at content marketing, providing good quality information. Russ, what are some of the most important things we have to get right when we're creating this marketing process? Well, once you've got that content strategy in place, which is you know, a very, very big time-consuming investment, etc. That is the backbone of your marketing. But another couple of things that are important components are video. Um, so when you create the information, the blog articles, go on camera and actually deliver that in a video because video is so powerful these days with social media. It has incredible cut-through. And, uh, and it also shows your personality as the business owner, and it allows people to get to know, like, and trust you. So video is a, is a crucial component of marketing these days. So you're creating content. You're creating videos based on that content. The next thing is you've got to be very active in your social posting. And that doesn't have to be too hard because now you can create extracts from your, from your content. But you need to be across Facebook, Instagram, YouTube getting in front of your ideal client. Because once you make this marketing engine work in terms of content, that's when you can start putting money against it and amplifying that content, creating more awareness in the marketplace. And the awareness leads to attention and attention leads to opt-ins to your CRM system so you get your marketing qualified leads. But probably one final thing that I'd say in terms of a marketing tip is don't neglect people once they've opted in. Because when you're hitting people much earlier in the sales process than maybe you currently are, if you're currently uh, relying on referrals, for instance, these are people that are further down the sales process, they're very hot. You're now going to get people a lot earlier. They're going to be colder. They're going to take longer to get to the, the sale. So the timing might not be right when they first enter your CRM, but don't be discouraged by that. We're playing the long game here. So 
don't neglect your email follow-ups. This is probably the number one mistake I see business owners make is they do a lot of things right in terms of their marketing. They create all these opportunities, but then they don't stay in touch with their, their list, we call it. And you need to be emailing your list at least every week. We email our list three times a week. If people don't want to hear from you, they'll unsubscribe and that's fine. You only want to be emailing people that do want to hear from you, but uh, do not neglect the people on your list. Make sure you're emailing them every week because there is so much business in there. If you could only get one point across to our audience today, what do you want that point to be? Make data-driven decisions because when you measure your KPIs, your key performance indicators, and you look at those every month, every quarter, every week, every day, then that enables you to make data-driven decisions. And again, it happens to us all. We hit our comfort zone. We do something well in business, and we want to keep doing more of that. But if we look at the data, we will clearly see that the problem has now moved to a different area of our business, and we need to get to work on that. That is a data-driven decision. So yeah, make data-driven decisions. Well, Russ, thanks for sharing all of that experience. Uh, I know there's several people that can't wait to start using some of the tools that you mentioned today or, or even using the ones that are already using a little bit better. If they want to find out more about some of the work that you're doing, how can they contact you? The Association of Professional Builders. So they could type that into a Google search and uh, our website will come up. And then they can um, they can watch a, a short video to see behind the scenes as to uh, what we do at the Association of Professional Builders. And uh, yeah, if they like what they what they see, more than welcome to to reach out uh, because if they're in the building industry, we'd love to have them as a member. Well, I'm not quite done with you yet. I do have a few lightning round questions, so put your seatbelt on for these. So my first question. Rush, you now have the ability to go back in time and speak with your former self on your first day as a business person. What advice would you give your former self? Uh, great question. I often think about this and, and talk about this with an old friend of mine as well, because uh, we both say the same thing. If we could start again, the best thing that I could have done was to have worked in a growing industry because I spent 25, 30 years operating and growing a business in an industry that was in decline. So it was it was 10 times harder than it needed to be. I would have gone into mobile phones, to be honest, but anything, <laughs> anything that was growing, uh, ride the wave would be, uh, would be my advice. <laughs> what are the last few books that you've read? Wow. If you'd asked me this any other any other place, I'd be struggling because my memory's not, especially my short-term memory's not what it used to be. But I'm actually sitting here and I've got my last three books on the desk. So the first one is Powered by Change by a guy called Jonathan McDonald. Love this book because uh, it gives us permission to think generically in terms of our why. And, uh, and it's how we build a company that will stand the test of time. And it's why companies like Kodak have actually failed. So that I, I would highly recommend uh, for any owner of a, of a company that uh, is serious about uh, being around for the long term. Another book that I've uh, just finished reading is The Science of Selling. It's quite an old book, but I love this because it talks about the sales process, but it gives the science behind everything. 
It's a book that predated uh, another book that I love called Influence by Robert Cialdini. And I think uh, Robert Cialdini got a lot of his information from this book, The Science of Selling. So I'd highly recommend that one as well. And, um, and one that uh, I'm almost finished on at the moment that I've got on my desk is Psycho-Cybernetics. And again, it's an old book written in the 50s, I believe. And again, uh, reading that, it uh, reminds me of a, a lot of Brian Tracy's uh, comments in some of his books uh, as well. So a fascinating book on mindset, psycho-cybernetics, but three great books there. When Hollywood decides to make a movie about your life, who plays Russ? Oh. <laughs> yeah, well, um, uh, this is going to sound a bit conceited. I'll tell you why. When I had my distribution company back in the UK, and it was growing. We, we wrote a newsletter. And part of that, I, I, I guess it was um, maybe in the early stages of content marketing, I wrote, I wrote the story about how the, the company came along. And uh, you can imagine we were dealing with market traders, all these rogues. So they just relentlessly took the mick out of me for that. And uh, we we're, were laughing about the story saying, this should be a Hollywood blockbuster. I know who would play the part, Brad Pitt. So that's always stuck in my mind. So I'd have to say Brad Pitt. <laughs> There you go. You heard it here first. So now you have the ability to talk to anybody throughout history. Who would you choose and why? I think it would be uh, Bobby Moore, who was the, the captain of the England football team in 1966 when they won the World Cup. Because, uh, yeah, he, he's never struck me as a very outgoing person. So I'd love to understand how he led that team to the ultimate glory, really. You know, his insights as a leader, really, um, when it's not always the easiest thing when you're not extroverted. And then this is the bonus question. So for an American, what's a phrase that you can teach us from Australia? We hear this a lot in Australia. Pull your head in. <laughs> and the proper use of that would be what? Well, you might have um, a staff member. You probably wouldn't say it to a customer, to be honest, but you might have a staff member. They might be complaining about this, about complaining about that. And rather than buying into uh, the situation, you just tell them, pull your head in, mate, and get on with it. So uh, it just means stop whining. Yeah, stop whinging and whining. Just get on with it. <laughs> there you go. It's going to catch on in the stage you just watch. <laughs> Russ, I want to thank you for coming on Scaling Up H2O and sharing all your wisdom. It's been awesome, Trace. Thanks so much. I've really, really enjoyed it. Nation, I've always wondered what's the cooler accent, either the British accent or the Australian accent, and Russ had them both. I wish I could speak that way. I just think that makes somebody sound so intelligent. Unfortunately, you, the Scaling Up listener, you're forced to listen to this voice, but I'm glad you do. You know, it doesn't matter if you're a builder or if you are an industrial water treater. Knowing what makes a business profitable is paramount. Friend of show, Colin Frayne, who was on episodes 101 and 102, he asked professional water treaters all the time if they know how much they are costing the company and how much they need to bring in just to break even. Now, most people he talks to never thought about that before. But I think you would agree if we knew that information, we can all do our job better. We can all quote things properly. We can all use our time properly 
And probably most important, we can explain our value to the people we're working with. All of those things go into play. Now, in the top half, I quoted Einstein. Here, I'm quoting G.I. Joe. Now you know, and knowing is half the battle. Well, Nation, we are in quarter four, and what does that mean to you? Are you finishing the year strong? Are you just starting to pick up speed? Are you so far off because you haven't started any of your goals or tried to accomplish anything this year? No matter where you are, you have to know where you are, your starting point, in order to do anything about it. Now, the last week in August, the Rising Tide Mastermind held our first ever live event. Nation, it was so awesome. Now, during the event, we looked at our goals for this year to try to make sure that we were going to finish strong. And as we spoke about our goals, I did a physics demonstration to illustrate the effort we put in to something. What I did was I dropped a basketball and a tennis ball side by side. And of course, you know, they fell at the same speed and neither of them really bounced very high. Well, then I positioned the tennis ball right over the basketball before I dropped them. And when they dropped, the basketball propelled the tennis ball at least 50 feet across the room. The point I was trying to make is I put the same energy in both experiments, but the second experiment resulted in the tennis ball literally getting launched across the room where the first one just gave a small bounce. Newton's third law states that for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. In physics, if something has momentum, it doesn't lose it easy. And we know momentum is mass times velocity. So what about momentum when it comes to our goals? I propose to the Rising Tide Mastermind at our live event that the mass represented what we knew about something and all the support we had around that knowledge. The velocity was representative of doing something about it. When the group analyzed why or why not a goal was getting crushed, it was because we were not engaging one of these items. So as we come into quarter four, assess yourself and see what you need to work on. Do you need to know what to do? Do you need to know how to do it? Do you have a group of people that can help you with those items, either with information, with motivation, whatever it is? And by the way, this is one of the reasons that the Rising Tide Mastermind members excel over so many of their peers, because they're constantly getting that help from a group of their peers and making sure they're focusing on the right things. Now, when you've done all of that, Then ask yourself, how often are you doing those things? How much activity is really going in to all the things you know to do to accomplish that goal? 
If we were to talk about water treatment, we could have the best product in the world, but it's not going to do anybody a bit of good if it just stays capped up in the drum. The same thing is true about our goals. We can have all the knowledge, skill, and desire, but if we don't continuously act on that, we will not accomplish it. So as we enter quarter four, think about those items, and I know you can finish 2021 strong. Now, I hope one of your goals is to challenge yourself each and every day to become just a little bit better. To help us with that, here's James McDonald. Hello, Scaling Up Nation. The next James's challenge as we grow as an industrial water treatment professional, drop by drop, is... Ask your customer what you can do better. Oh boy, this can be a big one. Depending upon your relationship, you may be in for an earful. Or maybe not. Regardless, showing that you're open for constructive criticism and then following through on the relevant advice shows that you care about the quality of work you do and the value you deliver. Be sure to share your experience on LinkedIn by tagging it with hashtag JC21 and hashtag ScalingUpH2O. This is James McDonald, and I look forward to seeing what you share. Well, thank you, James, and thank you, Scaling Up Nation, for listening to today's episode. I'll be back with you next Friday with a brand new episode. Until next week, be safe, take care of each other, and have a great week, folks. Scaling Up Nation, if you keep doing the same things, you're going to get the same results. And that's why joining a mastermind like the Rising Tide Mastermind is a game changer in allowing you to achieve different and better results. You have an entire team that combines to help you get to where you want to go. The Rising Tide Mastermind is the catalyst to your next level of success. To find out more about the Rising Tide Mastermind, go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash mastermind.